The vision of code-free programming has existed for decades. Software engineers have always dreamed of empowering non-technical users with the same creative tools that programmers have access to. For many years, the underlying technology of the web was not powerful enough to make this dream a reality. Platforms such as WordPress, Squarespace, and Wix have allowed for some of the functionality of programming without writing code, but the scope of what those tools could accomplish was limited. Today, the web has caught up. Improvements in browser technology and client devices mean that the end user has access to more powerful technology. The API economy encapsulates large amounts of functionality into cheap, well-defined functionality. No-code platforms are finding success among developers and non-developers after persisting for several years as their technology matured. Bubble is a code-free platform for building websites, startups, and internal tools. Emmanuel Strashnov and Joshua Haas are the founders of Bubble, and they join the show to tell the story of Bubble and give their perspective on engineering, business, and the low-code or no-code or code-free or code-light, whatever you want to call it, the lack of code movement. The story of Bubble is strikingly similar to that of no-code tools Airtable and Webflow, which we've covered in previous episodes. All of these products have taken years to get to maturity, with no shortcuts, only gritty, difficult engineering problems and performance improvements. Each of these no-code platforms has an inspiring story behind them and persistent founders who eventually got their product to success. That's why I love these no-code stories. We're going to be at KubeCon San Diego 2019. Erica and I, the two main members of Software Engineering Daily, we're also going to be at AWS reInvent Las Vegas, and we're planning a meetup at reInvent on Tuesday, December 3rd. It's not that formal. We don't even have a venue yet. If you have a venue that you can help us with, please send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. I don't know how many people will want to come to this meetup, but there's a link in the show notes if you are going to be at reInvent and you want to come to our meetup. With that, let's get on with the episode. Emmanuel and Josh, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thanks. You guys are working on Bubble. Bubble is described as a code-free programming language. Explain what that means. Well, what that means is that uh, we've basically created a visual interface that lets you describe what you want to build without running code. And what you can build today is basically web applications. So pretty much any website that people would be familiar with, you know, like Twitter, Airbnb, these kind of websites can be built on our platform without writing code. So it's still programming, but it's it's without code. Describe that experience in more detail. How does somebody build an app on Bubble? So you would start usually with a design aspect of it. So basically by dragging and dropping elements on the page, on the, like an empty page canvas that is uh, the background of your application. So it's a little bit you know, like Visual Basic back in the days. And the way you program it is by defining what we call workflows, which are going to be basically when the user clicks on this button, do this, do this, do that. So this, this, and that being you know, creating something in a database, charging a credit card, sending an email. And if you look at most of these websites that people are very familiar with, once again, you can usually... Br- 
rebuild these websites with, with those elementary actions. And so what we've done is basically pre-build those elementary blocks that people assembled together. The field of low-code or code-free, it's been around for a while at this point. People have been talking about it, working with these platforms for about maybe eight years, maybe 10 years. It's gradually found more and more traction, but it's still pretty far under the radar. Why is that? Why is it taking so long for people to adopt this technology? I think there's a couple factors. So one is... It really started um, a lot of it in the enterprise space first, like a lot of the, f- the early big players were in enterprise and enterprise software doesn't like spread in the same kind of like viral mindshare kind of way. The other thing is just the technology hasn't really been mature, right? Because building a platform that can completely replace programming is a huge investment. Like we spent basically, you know, our first five years of existence as a company, just like heads down bootstrapping, building the product. And you kind of need that deep upfront tech investment to have a platform that's usable enough. So I think a lot of it is like, you know, there's just players emerging today that are finally good enough to be interesting to the broader market. And one thing I'll add to that is the level of skepticism is fairly high because it's been tried, you know, for many, many years. And so you you don't want to go to market too soon with a half-baked solution. Otherwise, it kind of reinforces uh, the skepticism of everyone. So that's why you want to take your time a little bit. Was there an inflection point where the technology got good enough? I don't know, maybe... React or the V8 getting fast enough, smartphones getting good enough. Do you guys remember any specific inflection point? Yeah. So, I mean, I think Amazon Web Services honestly has been huge, right? Which, and they've been around for a while, but really that kind of enabling technologies made a pretty big difference. I think you're absolutely right about like V8 getting faster because most of the solutions are very JavaScript intensive. Like we certainly use a ton of JavaScript and having, you know, a fast engine is really important here. But I would say it's more a market maturity thing than a technology maturity. Like a a lot of the uh, early internet boom was like, hey, if you get a team of smart engineers, you can build a winning product in the space. And then it takes a few years for that to go from, okay, and now let's go horizontal with this. Like, let's go global. Let's take niches that like, you know, are smaller, but still need a good software product. And that's really where no code gets powerful by like sort of taking this thing that right now is only available in tech hubs and kind of spreading it to the rest of the world. So I think that's the real driver is my guess personally. What I think is profound about this low code stuff is that there is this niche of developer, entrepreneur kind of person who is somewhere between programmers and designers and product managers and just those like plucky hacker dudes that you see at Startup Grind that like maybe they don't know how to do anything except send a mail merge, but they're so aggro and they're so persistent that it's like you want that person on your team. Low code is like for like some type of each of those people. It's like somewhere in the Venn diagram. And I want to understand, like, who is the prototypical user that is picking this thing up and trying to build a product around it? 
I mean, that's, that's pretty much what you've describing. In terms of demographics, it's a little bit more diverse. So the age range of our users is actually pretty interesting. Like it goes literally from like high school students to people that are retired many, many years in. Uh, Like we have some users that reached out recently that were like 72. So and we have a lot of people that used to play a lot with FileMaker Pro, you know, like 20 years ago or Microsoft Access that use us today. But the core of our business here is like non-technical but tech-savvy startup people. So pretty much the guy you describe or the girl that goes to Startup Grind. But one thing I would say that you say it's a niche, uh, I'm not sure it's, it's that niche, actually. It's a pretty large crowd. Uh, I would say for one person that can write, you know, good production code, you probably have like 10 or like 50 people that would go to those events that are like not technical tech-savvy. And that's those people we, we talk to. And the other thing that I think is cool is I think we're starting to see pretty well-defined patterns for building your first version of a product on a low-code or a code-free platform. And it's not like the platforms try to restrict you from moving off of it incrementally. There are patterns for moving off of it incrementally, for exporting bits of functionality. Have you seen any any examples where people have built their MVP on Bubble, gone to market, and then broken out their code into like a Node.js app and a React app and kind of liberated themselves? Yeah, so we definitely see some customers go to market and then they'll do something like, you know, Bubble connects to APIs, right? So they'll build an API server, move like some of their custom like computation logic onto that and then use Bubble as the front end and their custom server as the back end. I mean, our goal is we want to keep them on Bubble just because, not not because we want to keep them, but because we want Bubble to be able to do the kinds of things that you need to build it for. But like realistically, right, there's always going to be use cases that are like one step ahead of whatever the current state of the art is. So we definitely see people like using like APIs, using, we, we also like let people extend Bubble with JavaScript. So using stuff like that to basically grow beyond like a prototype bubble app. Yeah, that, that final part is very important. So our goal is that people never migrate off bubble, but extend the platform when needed. So that's why I'm not necessarily a fan of this no code name. I mean, it's good because people are okay with it, but bubble is mostly no code. But if you're a coder, you might have a lot of fun on bubble writing JavaScript plugins that are like completely built with code. But the reason why, I mean, the fact that people build their MVP on Bubble because it's faster and more efficient to get to market still holds when you're a much bigger company. And so we just need the platform to be good enough to be able to cater to these people. Now, as a developer, in some ways, it's appealing to me, the idea of starting on a Bubble kind of platform, building out my MVP, and then doing a gradual migration. But there's something about it that makes me resistant to taking that pattern. There's something about it that makes me, even though it would probably be more code, I would rather just design all the React components myself. I would rather just do it all myself. Something in my gut. Maybe I've been overly trained to build my own yeah, HTML. That's and, probably what it is. And jo- You think so? Is, <laughs> there, mean, is there something I think rational? it's a little bit of a cultural like um, experience thing. If you're using React, you depend on React. Now, React is open, it's open source, so you can uh, go um, in the code if you need to, but in practice, you won't. Like, we just another framework out there. I think the more 
good success stories we have on top of us, the more comfortable you will be. One of the reasons why we've been doing pretty well is because we haven't been talking to uh, software engineers, so they don't have the same concerns that you have. Uh, we want to convert more engineers to users, but our experience that it's actually, like you're a good example, a harder sell to an engineer because an engineer, when you go with something like Bubble to someone, if it's a technical person, they're going to see limitations and worries first. If it's a non-technical person, they're going to see impairment first because in capabilities, because the alternative is not to have anything. So currently, the big part of our audience is non-technical and we don't have that challenge. With engineers, it still happens. I would say today is much better than like five years ago, uh, but we still have a long way to go. But I'm hoping that at the end of this conversation, we'll have convinced you that you know, your next web app should be built on Bubble. Well, I don't even program anything anymore, so <laughs> I just do podcasts. But take me inside your empathy machine. Like, How do you figure out how non-programmers think if those are the people that you're going after are you guys both software engineers or you yeah so you're you're getting to the the heart of the answer so a manual codes but but so i used to code a ton in high school and for 10 years i actually like was a management in management consulting that i went to business school so i arrived basically as a non-technical guy on the team but then on the job i learned how to code again because i realized pretty quickly that if i didn't code there wouldn't be much to do uh, given like how much of a product company we are but i tried to keep and a lot of the product like the customer facing product was actually built by me and i tried to keep that brain both like technical brain and non-technical person one thing i would say though is again there are a ton of people that are not technical, but they can use Microsoft Excel, which is a pretty complicated interface, you know. And those people, they're non-technical, but you know, you know how they think if you know how to use Excel. And that's kind of what we model our interface to. I mean, it doesn't look like Excel, but they're the same, you know, logical steps when it's about knowing where to click and what to do. And if you use yourself these products, even if you're technical, you can do a lot of smart things. But what about like when you're talking to the 72-year-old person or the high schooler who is not a programmer, do you learn anything that's surprising to you about what is intuitive or what is not intuitive to them? Yeah, I mean, we're very community-driven, so the feedback loop is very fast. And so when something doesn't work, we tend to hear about it within hours after we push them, to be honest. One thing I'd say, though, is that there aren't that many differences between someone who's 72 and or 16 years old, because most people, I mean, 72, not everyone, but most people are fairly digitally native, which means they're used to using the same website or the same product. And so that created a, like a common bar for everyone when using a computer. iPhone is kind of the wrong example because I think uh, Apple products tend to simplify interfaces too much. I think Microsoft products are better examples you know, of a complicated product that still empowers you to do a lot of things. But a lot of right, Microsoft Office is the most used software in the world, I think. And so that bar is uh, fairly consistent across ages. You guys started Bubble in 2012. What was the original spec for the product? As in, like, the original, like, design vision? Or yeah, what was the goal? Pretty much the same as today, actually. Like, if you showed our 2012 selves, like, what we've built, we'd be like, oh, yeah, that's kind of what we're working on. Our first, like product true north was can you build airbnb and kickstarter like i actually remember like testing like elements of their design and seeing if we could like replicate their homepage just to make sure like our design engine could actually like produce what a real like startups like web page looks like basically and the initial idea was really to empower non-technical people to start companies. Because one thing is a technical vision that you have. The other thing is, why do you do this? And the, the reason why we were doing this is because we felt 
too many projects were just not happening because of the shortage either of engineers or, or funding, which is essentially the same thing at the end of the day. And we felt it was just very sad that you know a lot of people have good ideas and to just can't try them. It's interesting. 2012, I'm trying to think back to the what was in the water at that point. I guess 2008 was around the time when Airbnb got started. So four years in, it was really taking off. Startup fever was starting to brew. Yeah, Facebook went public in 2012. Right, okay. And so things... So, the social network was a hot movie, which I'm sure had a lot of impact on people. I think it really did. Uh, yeah, it definitely did. And then Stripe was... I guess Stripe started. Started, getting tra- yeah, started getting traction story after that. And it's kind of been up and to the right since then, right? Like people have just wanted to do more and more startups. How has the pursuit of starting a company through starting with a low code application how has that pattern advanced or has it become more popular or do you still feel like it's kind of like under the radar as a way to get started it's starting to break into the mainstream like i think we are on the threshold yeah like even like the last six months, I think the dialogue around it has changed. Like it's starting like we're, we're, we're talking to like various accelerators, like, you know, everyone at Y Combinator knows bubble is a thing, for instance, like it's starting to like be in the consciousness that this is a tool in the toolkit. And there's still like a lot of the like use uh, no code tools for prototyping, right? And then switch to code. Like that's still a big thing people think, but we're starting to see, you know, people build a prototype or an MVP and then they launch. And it's like, well, are you going to rebuild it? Or are you going to get customers and iterate, right? And you have to make that trade-off and people are increasingly making the trade-off to just, well, go a little bit further before moving off. And we, we just want to like keep on pushing that limit point out and out and out basically. And the old thing was you would have a landing page with just, yeah. with just like the email address yeah, yeah, or yeah, like launch rock or like yes. launch rock. Yeah. yeah. What, what did you say? Launch, launch rock. rock. Launch Rock. I don't know what that is. Well, that was a company that was just doing that. Oh, just landing pages. It was like 2012. That Launch Rock was like huge, I think. Okay. Or there was like the flow where it's like you get started and you click and it's like, oh, it's a type form. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, your startup is a type form. Yep. And that worked for some people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not anymore, I don't think. I don't think people like go for that as much. They're kind of like, eh, I drop off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, that, that's kind of like part of the pattern, right? Like that was like step one, like the very basic idea, idea of validation before starting coding. And, you know, then it got to like, all right, you know, build something a little bit more sophisticated, build a WordPress blog, build a, you know, a Squarespace page. And then I think the new generation of no code tools are just taking it a step further because at the end of the day, like where the whole philosophy of that landing page came from was like the lean startup iterate idea, right? Like don't invest engineering effort building something until you know it works and anything that like reduces the cost of testing things out and iterating is just going to get adopted basically so from 2012 to 2019 is a lot of time in the world of technology i can imagine there has been a lot of refactoring in the lifetime of bubble I can imagine there have been some very, very painful sprints where you realize... There were. All right. <laughs> we're moving off a of backbone. You know, we're going to X. 
And then maybe we're going from X to React. Like, how many times have you had to re- refactor the front end? <laughs> so we we did something which some mornings I wake up and think this was brilliant. Some mornings I wake up and think this was terrible. I'm still on the fence. We basically built our own JavaScript framework because right around the time we were starting was like, you know, JavaScript frameworks were a thing, but they weren't mature. There was It was not clear who the winner was going to be. It was kind of like chaos. It wasn't like today where React is like the dominant player. So we rolled our own. Um, it's super tightly integrated with our overall programming language. So like we have this like really tight coupling between it and our core technology. So every time we bring on a new engineer, we have like a learning curve problem because they're like, what is this? It doesn't look like what they've been doing at their previous job. But on the other hand, you know, because it's ours, like we've evolved it with the need of the company and we haven't had to like rip it out and like go from like the latest, you know, framework to the next one to the next one. So when you say you have like bubble is a programming language, is it actually a programming language or do you, is it just like the, you're talking about the visual interface? I consider it a real programming language. I mean, it's turn complete you could, you know, theoretically build any algorithm. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. Like, you know, so so it's it's designed for a specific use case, right? And expressing like an arbitrary piece of code in it could get a little hairy, but you could. And so, you know, even though there's no code, like it's definitely programming. It flexes the same logical uh, muscles. It flexes the same like sort of conceptual thinking. Uh, to give another definition of what programming is, like you can say it's a Turing complete system, or you can say, can you have bugs? Like a lot of no-code tools out there, you can't have bugs. I mean, if you build a website on uh, those, I don't know, Webflow or uh, tools like that, you can't go wrong. I mean, you can do a spelling mistake, but the website is still going to be beautiful and do what it's expected to do. On Bubble, it's very easy to have bugs. Like when you build your workflows, if you miss uh, uh, mess the order of the actions or something like this, you're not going to have the expected behavior. And those bugs are not going to be on our code side. It's going to be in your application side, which is why one of the most important features we have is actually a debugger, because our users need to, bo- need to be able to debug the application. So because you can have bugs, it is programming. Whether you type you know, on a keyboard or you use your mouse on a visual interface, it's almost a detail. Since you mentioned Webflow, I think of generation one of the site builders as Squarespace, Wix. I mean, oh, I guess generation one is like WordPress. Generation 1.5 is Wix, Squarespace, Weebly, you know, whatever, a bunch of these things. Those satisfy, I guess Shopify maybe is like 1.75, generation 1.75. And then generation 2.0 is like Webflow, Bubble, Airtable maybe, Retool maybe, like these kinds of things. The thing about both of these generations is I think they get earmarked as competitive, but it's more like, this is like everybody in the world should have one of these, at least. Like your blog should be on one of these or your personal website or your personal business. Basically, literally everybody in the world should have a website and, you know, probably they should not be editing HTML, so they should be using WordPress or, you know, Weebly or Wix or whatever, depending on their level of expertise. But since you mentioned Webflow specifically, I think this is the product that that Bubble gets compared to the most. How do you see the market breakdown between Webflow and Bubble? 
I mean, currently, I think uh, we'll see how it plays out in the future, but we're talking to fairly different people, actually, even though people compare us. Like, my understanding of Webflow is that they actually cater much more to uh, designers originally. Like, I think they've been very strong with freelancers and agencies. We go more for, like, business people, uh, product managers, marketers uh, that want to create functionality over design on Webflow is probably design over functionality, which is why, by the way, when we look at the limitations of both products, I mean, Webflow is a fantastic tool to create beautiful interfaces. On the back end, it's fairly limited. We are great on the back end. You can do pretty much anything you want. On the front end, you can do a lot, but it's, to be honest, it's you have to know what you're doing to make something pretty. It's pretty easy to do something that is not pretty if you don't pay attention to what you do. So, you know, because we had different focuses. Another reason why I'm not a huge fan of the no-code thing is it's when you say no-code, people think it's all these products are competing with each other, but actually I don't think they are. Like Airtable is for one specific need that, you know, it's completely different from Webflow, for instance. Uh, Bubble in the, in the middle. Retool is for uh, like big companies doing retool, uh, doing like SQL queries and stuff visually and stuff like this. Right. So uh, each of those products actually have a very different need, feel a different need, talk to a different market. And all these markets are actually huge. So we're not really competing with each other, I think. That's a good point, because I guess describing a category by what that category is lacking doesn't really make any sense. Like, Yeah, I mean, if no code means there is no code, I mean, like... Yeah, it's like my water bottle. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. A, that's a, Facebook is no, no code. <laughs> Facebook is no code, yeah. So, so it's not, yeah. I mean, well, that's a media thing. Yeah. This is a no-code podcast. I mean, I prefer talking about visual programming because if you look at that in that so from that angle, then it's, well, first of all, not many players exist in that space. It's a little bit narrow, but it also explains exactly what it is. Right. Yeah, and then you have something like PowerPoint. Like PowerPoint, you know, you could argue is visual programming, but not really, yeah, I mean, maybe. Like, so like, some people, who cares? Some people now put Coda. You know what is that? Coda.io. I've heard about that. I haven't, right. I haven't looked so at it's, that. So it's it's a little bit it's closer to our table. It's like you know um, a more interactive Google slide, uh, Google document, and people put them in the no code space as well. But again, the no code definition is a little bit too broad. Man, I bet the the kids who are doing uh, Minecraft right now, these are going to be the kids who like totally dominate these these platforms, these low code or no code or code free things. So getting back to the engineering side of things, so you said. The back end is more programmable, you know, in, in contrast to Webflow, perhaps. W- what does that mean? Like, I, I guess I could imagine Airbnb, for example, when Airbnb got started, it's basically like a CRUD app and all their hard work is basically, how do we build this market? So all their hard work is kind of offline, but over time it's become like a data platform. Like they have tons of data work to do. They have to build a just gigantic search index and they have to do information retrieval and recommendations and all kinds of things. So I can imagine there was this period of time where they were going from this go-to-market struggle to building out a data platform. If I was doing that with my bubble-based version of Airbnb, is the back end going to be flexible enough to offer me all the data infrastructure needs that I have? Yes. Yeah, so probably not to the Airbnb scale today. What you can do is you can like push data to, you know, third-party machine learning APIs. Google's released some stuff. Amazon's released some stuff, you know, sort of outsource the like really difficult number crunching to like the specialist services, then pull the data back into bubble and sort of process it. So we definitely are more geared towards that early day Airbnb, more of a CRUD platform. But 
we try and make ourselves as extensible as possible to, you know, let you sort of evolve in that direction. And we hope to like continue, you know, we want to keep on adding to our functionality, right? Like we'd love to reach a point where, you know, it's one button click and we tell you how to like, you know, process all the data in your database, you know, build a like in-house recommendation system that you can install easily. So, you know, to today, like you, you do probably have to work with external services once you get to Airbnb scale. But, you know, I see this evolving over the long term. There's a distinctive demo experience on Bubble. So if I go on Bubble and I scroll down the the page, I can do a one-click try out the editor and it it takes me into actually a version of your homepage. So your homepage is actually built in Bubble, which is pretty cool. Uh, just the idea that the user who is on your landing page is really experiencing the kind of thing that you can build with Bubble. So it's sort of a meta experience. You can actually kind of imply that, look, you too can build your own startup on Bubble. When I click into that experience and I am, and the, the editor is loading, the editor is going to load the editable Bubble.com, or what is it, try Bubble.io experience there's some startup time, which is totally understandable. This is a very complex application. I would expect like nothing faster. But I want to know what's going on. When I click to instantiate my own editable version of this website, what's going on in that startup time when that, that editor is loading? Yeah, so we have uh, the homepage as this like file, this basically giant several megabyte JSON document. And when you navigate to it, we create a copy of it, put it into a database, and then fetch it out of the database, send it to your web browser, and then draw it on the screen in real time, basically. And so we do that for each person because we don't want, you know, more than one person to modify the same version of the, like the, what we call the private version of the uh, homepage. And by the way, it's not just a homepage. It's our entire application is built on Bubble. Like account management, uh, our subscriptions, pricing, marketplace. Everything is built on Bubble, actually. The, it's only the editor that's native. Right. But when that gigantic blob of JavaScript is being loaded, what's going on there? What's the JSON blob decompilation thing? Yeah, I mean... It's mostly just moving the data around, honestly, like moving it, you know, to the database. We have this in-house built database system for managing these applications. So we need to like copy it into there and then, you know, sending over the wire to your laptop, right? Like we have the whole thing loaded on your on your computer and Bubble's kind of the interpreter. So the editor basically runs the application renders it in front of you, sort of walks through this whole document, says like, hey, there's a button here, so let's draw a button here. Hey, there's like a workflow here, so create the workflow on the workflow tab. So it's basically just like walking through the entire thing. What cloud providers do you use? Amazon Web Services. Completely? We use like some third party, like we use like Librato for like monitoring. We use like SendGrid for sending emails. Cloudflare. Cloudflare for, yep. But it's mostly AWS. Yeah. What have been the AWS services that have surprised you in their usefulness? We stick to the 
basics. So we use EC2, we use RDS, we use the Redis Elastic Cache hosting, we use S3. Lambda a little bit. Lambda, yeah, lam- Lambda is pretty cool. Those are the main ones, honestly. Like we we, we kind of like playing close to the bare metal in terms of technology because we're building a system. So we end up having to do a lot of low level stuff sometimes. So we keep things kind of simple on the tax stack. To be fair, it's not been true all the time. We've kind of gotten more and more bare bone. Yeah, yeah. Like on the database side, we started with what? Cloudant and Firebase and (laughs) Elasticsearch and then uh, Postgres, which I think was a good evolution. What was the first one? Cloudant, I think. Cloudant. Yeah, Yeah, IBM bought them out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and, then, and then Firebase a year after that. Right, because Firebase was... Before they got acquired. Okay, so what, in like 2013 or something, 2014? I use Firebase a lot today, but I guess Firebase is kind of too expensive if you're scaling, right? I mean, to be honest, back, back then it was not a price issue, that was more a reliability issue. And more our fault than Firebase's fault. Like we were doing things to Firebase that like the developers clearly had <laughs> never anticipated. Like we hit like the maximum like JSON nesting depth. Oh, we were like writing God. like millions of records to a single node. Like we we're doing all kinds of crazy shit with it. That... Oh, because they were the quote unquote real time database. And you're like, okay, right. <laughs> cool. we're building real time. <laughs> yeah. We'll use that. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. That is 100% what happened. <laughs> wow. So, and then Elasticsearch? Yeah, basically, because we wanted uh, like a lot, we're doing like a lot of complicated like search and like filtering and like querying functionality for our users. And Elasticsearch gave us a bunch of that out of the box because it just ships with it. But Elasticsearch isn't like great as a primary data store for like data reliability issues. And we ran into like some scaling issues because we do some weird stuff with like, you know, every single one of our users has their own unique skill schema, which causes like all kinds of havoc. So what we eventually decided was like, yeah, Elasticsearch buys us a ton of stuff, but we need something a little bit more flexible and low level. So we eventually switched to Postgres, like going for the sort of conservative solution. But, you know, it's been a pretty good tool for us. I'm just trying to imagine, because you know, for those who, who haven't seen Bubble, so it's literally like, it's kind of like a WYSIWYG. It's a WYSIWYG editor, you know, drag and drop your different website components. And obviously the, the, the model is represented in your browser and it's getting kind of replicated to the, the Bubble backend so that you have this synchronized model of the website application that you're building. I'm trying to understand how Elasticsearch would work as a backend for that system so that was not for to store the application object that was to store the user's application uh, the application's data like you know if you create airbnbs that's where you would store the apartments oh okay 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 so So you wanted which is actually one of the more challenging issues um, because that's where you know each application has a different schema like we know what an application looks like because we define that ourselves what we don't know is a different type the user is going to define like the bubble builder is going to define all the different types to describe the data of his application and we need to be able to and we saw a lot of crazy shit and we need to be able to handle a lot of that interesting because I would imagine the bubble is mostly used for like fairly simple CRUD applications and it wouldn't really matter. Nope. No? <laughs> okay. What's, well, give me something complex. What's the most complex app somebody's built on bubble? 
So the most complex app, I guess, I guess Dividend here. So it, it's a fintech company. It's actually fairly large now. And they're building like, it's a fintech business. So basically a financial company uh, selling loans to people that want to install a solar panel on their roof. And so they've built a fairly complicated web platform where homeowners can apply to get approved for a loan. Installers can see all the different people uh, they have in their portfolio and report the progress, who has been approved for the loan, first of all, and then report the success, uh, the progress of the actually installing the solar panel on the roof and installers can put money and get returned. So this platform is fairly complicated where you can have a lot of different situations. So it is crude. I mean, at the end of the day, all applications are just about, you know, finding data and modifying it. But the different flows, the different flows that where the data can go through and the different conditions that apply to each different object they save, like is in the hundreds or thousands. And so they've built that entire bubble. In terms of scale, it's fairly large. I think they process more than a billion dollars of loans actually through a bubble build software. But another example I would give, which is not necessarily the most complicated, but the craziest thing is when you create a tool that's extremely open-ended like Bubble, you basically empower them to do crazy things because, you know, you can add complexity just by adding by a few, few clicks. So we've seen some people like with, you know, thousands of the fields on a data type, like doing all kind of like the most crazy way to describe the data in a way that was kind of working for them. And we have to handle that. And in many ways, I would say we had more trouble making sure it works well for them than for this business that, you know, processed a billion dollars of loans. Right. I mean, like I've seen some crazy spreadsheets. I mean, everybody's exactly, right. seen crazy spreadsheets. Yeah, Excel is a perfect example of, you know, you create an open-ended tool, look at the result. <laughs> right. So but that, that's what's cool about Bubble. I mean, that, or like, that's why I love my job. I'm with you. Like, I mean, that's one of the things that's very motivational about working in software is it is this creative pursuit where, in many cases, you're building something that allows other people to be creative on top of it. I mean, that's exactly what Bubble is. Dividend, is that the name of the company that's been really successful and that's building on Bubble completely still? And they haven't migrated off of Bubble. So actually, they are, uh, like they told us a year and a half ago, because they got acquired. And when they got acquired, it wasn't an acquire hire, that was a true acquisition. And so the, acqui- the acquiring entity was like, okay, what is this? We need to move something more traditional. And so a year and a half ago, they told us they would move out, move off. And honestly, they still haven't. Because what's happening is, you know, it takes so much time. Th- that's where uh, I think no code is going to win eventually because uh, it's so much faster and cheaper to build on top of uh, a no-code platform that it's very hard for their engineering team to catch up because what's happening is, so they're still operating, so they keep modifying the product and improving the product they're building on top of Bubble. And so the pace they improve the product is faster than the engineers, you know, trying to catch up. So there are, are they moving off? Yes. When? Honestly, I don't know. And they don't know either. And if they're doing data science, like... Whatever, everybody does ETL anyway. So like the complex backend stuff is all like data science. Run an ETL job. I mean, I imagine you can just export all the data from Postgres and then just put it into Spark or whatever. And you got your platform. Like, what do you even need to migrate for? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of that's kind of how we see the universe. That's <laughs> our thesis. I mean, yeah. It almost kind of seems like. M&A would be easier also. Like if it's all like, hey, here's our app. It's in bubble. Like that's all that's all there is to it. You know, your diligence process is literally like we're on this platform. We don't know how it works. It's proprietary, but (laughs) at least it's not like a nest of, you know, AWS services and external APIs. It's like fairly easy to understand. What happens when an application scales on bubble? 
Yeah, so um, our model is basically we give users more server capacity as they get bigger and as they like upgrade. So today what we do for our biggest users is we eventually move them to their own like private server cluster. We would actually like to eventually not have to do that and have like our core system be able to like scale up even to like our biggest customers. But um, what we do today is basically a private bubble instance that just like grows with the customer's data. Have there been any particularly hard scalability problems to solve either in terms of you know, your own scalability problems or customer scalability problems? I mean, all the time. This is basically what like 70% of our engineering work is because, you know, people are writing queries and they don't have a mental model, nor should they need to have a mental model of how the query is being executed. So it's kind of like the problem that like a SQL database designer, like someone building a SQL database has to solve, right? How do you execute how do you build a query planner and execute the expression? But at least for like building a SQL database, like you expect the end user to like sort of be a programmer. You tell them like, you know, create an index if you need to accelerate that. We have to guess. So we actually like behind the scenes, we'll build indexes on the fly based on like usage patterns and sort of try and guess what queries need to be optimized. We also have like a query uh, rewrite engine where we take a query, sort of analyze its structure, see if it's like mathematically equivalent to a simpler version of the query and try and convert it. So we do like a ton of stuff on basically scaling uh, user applications. That's like our, basically our biggest technical problem. Wow. Cool. No, no, the, the good news is that, you know, if you solve the problem from one application, you solve it for most people. So that's where we started to be an interesting place. I think to date, we had more than 300,000 apps created on Bubble or 250 or something. So all these applications, you know, you can see different patterns uh, looking at large scale. And then when we solve it for someone, we improve it for everybody else. So it's not an end, uh, it's not an endless uh, race. Otherwise, you know, that wouldn't be possible. Is it 300,000 paying customers? No, I wish. <laughs> Those are, our free plan is very generous. So we have a ton of people that just use a free plan. And... Uh, what I've heard about Heroku, Heroku has their famous free plan. I've heard that it gets abused, basically, where, I mean, you, you, you know, you can set up your, you can deploy your, your node application to, to Heroku, and it'll fall asleep, which means that basically if nobody accesses it for a while, it just, you know, is taken offline, essentially. And, and then it's, you know, next time you're, you're, you need to summon it, you have a cold start problem because the application actually has to get loaded. Do you do something like that for the free applications? No. So we actually invested a lot in building technology that lets us share infrastructure at a more granular level so that the the cold starts are like measured in like single digit milliseconds rather than in um, you know spinning up a whole container. So we do things like our node servers have this like uh, co-routine implementation that lets us basically jump between different user apps. So we like run an app for like a millisecond or two, then switch to another app, then switch to another app within the same node process. It's a little hairy, kind of cool, fairly proud of it, and definitely... What, what, what's the uh, the bus factor on that part of the application? <laughs> it's a little worse than I would like it to be, <laughs> let's put it like that. <laughs> You're the only person that knows how to use that part. 
not quite that bad, but but definitely like I'm the only person who really understands it end to end. And then I think there's other people on the team who could probably wade in and debug it if they have to. I think that's the only way to build this kind of this kind of application to build something like Bubble. Like I, I actually interviewed Vlad from Webflow a few weeks ago, and like. I'm sure you guys have gone through a period like this, but he there was some period where of like eight months when he was building Webflow with, uh, I guess, his brother and their other co-founder, where they were just like totally in the weeds, you know, solving these really, really tough technical problems. Because the whole low code thing, as you said, this really has to be something where you're like, we're going to do this. It's going to take us forever. We're going to do it. We decided, you know, we're going to ride the technological wave until our efforts converge with the state of the art. And until that time, you're just solving really, really hairy technical problems. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely feel uh, their pain. We have done a lot of that. And, you know, when we bring on new engineers, like the first, like, you know, four months on the job, honestly, are pretty rough. Like they're, they basically have to absorb, you know, years and years and years worth of deep technical investment in a code base, like written by a couple people moving fast. And it's tough, but we're really starting to see like the team taking on a life of its own and like making the systems their own. And that's like so inspiring. I mean, like, you know, both the manual and I do dive in and write code. Like we are not out of the day-to-day coding yet, but we're getting to the point where, you know, it's a lot more management and working with engineers than us writing code ourselves. And that's like a really cool transition. That must be gratifying. How many people on your team at this point? Two people started this week. So I'm 17, I think, including the two of us. Okay. And what makes Bubble kind of an interesting story is the fact that you were basically bootstrapped until, or somebody, people keep telling me that bootstrapped is a bad word now, like self-funded is the like, <laughs> oh, the client way. funded, I mean, what is it? Client funded? Customer client funded. Client funded. funded. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or, or self-funded. But like you raised a seed round seven years later. Why? Yeah. Well, so it's more of a question of like, why not like originally, right? Because we always wanted to be big. Like I think what we're trying to do um, to be successful, like we're, we're building a massive platform, right? And like eventually you have to get to a really large scale. So it is the kind of business that VC money makes sense with. The reason we waited so long is once you get on that VC treadmill of like, producing numbers to justify the raise, to invest in producing numbers to justify the raise, like you have to be ready to take off. And our initial strategy was like the opposite of that. Like our initial strategy was work with like, you know, first was like five customers then like 20 customers, like really investing in making those customers successful to like sort of prove out that like this tool would work for people. So we just weren't ready for the VC treadmill. Like we actually saw this happen to a competitor that started around the same time as us. They like took funding. Did YC as a traditional Silicon Valley thing. And that they just flamed. Very smart team, very competent engineers shipped a product that was like, you know, good, but not really prime time ready. And you just can't grow on that kind of product fast enough. Mm. Especially for the, again, for startups like us, like in the no-code space, in the first years of you building your product, like 
users always ask you still today, you know, the most common email we get from new users is, hey, can I build this? Can I build that? And until you're in a position where you tell them yes, most of the time, you don't want too many users because it's a waste of time to tell them no. And it's a waste of opportunity because the likelihood they'll come back is fairly low. And if you take money too soon, external funding too soon from VCs, you're going to try to get more users to go to your website because at the end of the day, that's what investors are going to care about. And then you're going to tell them no, and it's going to be, you know, not beneficial for the business at all. For other businesses, I would say it's a little bit different. I mean, if you're building a marketplace where you kind of need to fake it on one side so that the other side, you know, uh, catch, catches up, then it probably makes sense to raise money for something like uh, Bubble. It doesn't, it's not the case. And by the way, Webflow Bootstrap for many, I mean, they didn't bootstrap, but they self-financed after the seed round for a very long time uh, before the last round they did. And it was brutal for them. And another reason I like being in the engineering world is that people such as yourselves are willing to be fairly misunderstood for a long period of time. You basically have no choice but to be misunderstood. You used to work at Bridgewater. Like, you worked at Bridgewater for three years. My guess is you were making a much better living at Bridgewater than in the first, like, three years of Bubble. I mean, my salary has still not caught up to what I was making at Bridgewater, honestly. But at the end of the day, like, working on something that you believe in pays for a lot of a lot of quality of life, right? So, yeah, at, at some point, like, it's tough. And we went through some, like, honestly, some pretty dark periods where we were small enough that it wasn't obvious this was ever going to become a real thing and the money wasn't, like, coming in yet. And, you know, we had been doing it. Yeah, you know, I think, like, the worst part was, like, yeah, three or four years in, I think. Yeah, it was, like, three so three years in, yeah. Three years in, like, that, that, that yeah, was We still not hadn't fun. really taken salary out. Personal finances were starting to become like a four-digit number on your bank account, which is, you know, low. But, you know, we really think what we're trying to do here needs to exist. Like, it's a very important thing. It depends how much you believe in what you're doing. The advice I would give to anyone that wants to start a company, because it is really hard, is would you work on that if you don't have funding and you don't have salary for two years? And if it's no, you probably shouldn't do this. Did you guys but do, it's hard. Did you guys do consulting or something? Like, whoa... No, actually, three. we're both full-time, uh, yeah. You take loans? Like, are you serious that three years in, you were down to four digits in your bank account? I was. I think Josh was doing a little bit better. I had an MBA to pay back, so I had to pay back my MBA. That's how I came to the U.S. But we both had, like, fairly nice savings from our previous jobs. Yeah, and we, we did, like, um, like the big client we mentioned, Dividend, um, like, they were paying us to do sort of consulting on top of our platform. So they were basically paying us to do feature development work. So... Our, even when our customer base was small, we were still making some real money from our customers. So it wasn't like completely just watching our savings drain away. It was just like mostly watching our savings just drain away. Oh, okay. So, but once you get there, like, I mean, you get seven years in and you've got traction I mean, it's it's cool. It's cool that you have the nuanced perspective on on venture capital, and I think the, you know, it's like you think about like uh, just personal financing, personal loans, or like mortgages. We have a vernacular for like 
when and how you should take mortgages and you know it's a very sophisticated industry you know you can get this kind of mortgage or that kind of mortgage and it's like yeah you know a buffet to choose from whereas venture capital we talk about in generally a little bit more rigid terms there are people such as yourselves who are able to take a more savvy approach and kind of look at it from a from a more um, what do I actually need from this vehicle and how can we satisfy our needs while also satisfying the investors needs so Tell me about structuring a deal in this kind of situation when you're seven years in, you haven't raised any money, and you've got a fairly profitable business. Yeah. Well, first of all, to your general point, like I think the culture where raising VC funding is like a triumph in and of itself is like nuts, right? Like, it's like the same for a mortgage. It's right. like if you celebrated right. getting a mortgage yeah, 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 or yeah. student loans. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, congratulations. We did it. We finally got our mortgage. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So actually, like, you know, we ended up with lead investor signal fire we really like, but it was like an interesting process because like, you know, like the series. A firms, like we didn't look quite like a typical Series A company. The seed firms were like a little too far along for most of them. So we were like kind of in this like weird niche. And we eventually found a number of firms that like were kind of flexible with their investment thesis and were willing to just like, you know, say like, hey, you look cool. We're, we're, we're into that. So we we're able to get some uh, bids and like had a, you know, around that we we're pretty happy with and, you know, great, great investors. But we did struggle a bit because especially in the first like you know few weeks of uh, fundraising to like figure out who we should even be talking to have you guys built any side businesses with bubble yourselves not really actually <laughs> i guess we should have it we're a little bit too busy i mean i built a website for my wedding but it's not a business you know it's a it's a personal website just to you know gather uh, information about dietary restrictions <laughs> but i did yeah, and I built like a personal to-do tracker for myself, which I actually no longer use. I moved off into a different system, but you know, so we definitely like use it for our own pet projects. But you know, you can only like. Uh, I mean, but more seriously though, uh, a lot of our internal tools are built on Bubble, so we don't use Jira. Mm -hmm. We use a Bubble built tool, so we do a lot of things internally. And uh, in fact, part of the Josh was talking about the onboarding uh, process, and part of our onboarding process, and that's true for everyone, not just for engineers, is uh, very heavily focused on becoming a bubble expert quickly. So we have actually a bubble test to validate your knowledge of a bubble to make sure because we need everyone on the team to be extremely good at bubble, especially engineers, but everyone. Otherwise, you know, engineers naturally are not the typical users, and you don't want engineers to work on a product they're not using themselves. So you have to force that a little bit. Do you guys think there will be an open source tool like this, an open source visual programming tool? I mean, there might be. We, we have considered someday like open sourcing our runtime engine or something like that. It's like sort of an aspirational idea down the line. I think, you know, with something like this, it's just like a huge time investment to build. So eventually it becomes a job and needs some kind of business model. Like it's not the kind of thing that we could have built as a hobby or something like that. So, you know, who knows, right? Like I can certainly imagine either us doing something eventually or like, you know, someday once visual programming is just like the dominant paradigm, some like rebel group of hackers like the you know, does like the Linux style revolution, like who knows, but I don't see it happening tomorrow. I think people are less resistant to paying 25 different SaaS providers every month than paying a gigantic bill to Microsoft. Like 
it was in in the 90s. I think people are content paying a little bit of tax to a collection of proprietary providers rather than one single system. Josh, you worked at Bridgewater. So what cultural practices have you imported from Bridgewater into Bubble? (laughs) <laughs> Great question. <laughs> For people listening who don't know, Bridgewater has like a sort of infamous culture. Like uh, the CEO, Ray Dalio, published this book called Principles, which sort of lays out like this whole doctrine. So I actually was at Bridgewater a super interesting uh, time. Like I joined right when Dalio was institutionalizing the management principles. And I actually, I started as a technologist, but I joined the team that he was like having like roll out the principles across uh, the company. So I sort of got to see firsthand like the rollout of this. And my takeaway is like, there is like things that were amazing about it things that I disagree with and don't think worked at all. And like, is like a mixture of like wonderful and terrible basically. So I've tried to take the wonderful. I think the things I most appreciate about Bridgewater is how they think about hiring and talent. Like they really believe in hiring for values and deep capabilities rather than valuing like resume or skills or like short-term things. Um, And they have like a set of interview techniques, like asking people about their life stories, asking them like why over and over and over again to sort of get to deep understanding. So I've definitely pulled that from it. I've taken the like sort of intense candor piece of it to like my own personality flavoring of it. Like a lot of the knock on Bridgewater is that it's just like a brutal culture because people are so blunt with each other and super direct. I try and take the the good part, which is like building like a relationship of trust where you can like tell someone what you really think. But I think the thing that like that needs to be caveated with is that like you have to earn the right with someone to tell them, hey, I think what you did sucked because of X, Y, and Z. Like if you just say that to someone in a context where you haven't demonstrated that you're saying it to help them because you're working on the same mission, it causes a lot of pain. So I sort of keep that lesson in the back of my head. It's a long book. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Principles is a long book. Yeah, I I had to uh, read the whole thing. uh, (laughs) Or or I got to see the early drafts, the evolution over time. Like, yeah. Was there any moment where you were like, this guy is completely mad? Like, this is holacracy. Like, I I mean, it could have been holacracy, you know? (laughs) Holacracy was this, you know, big thing that was institutionalized at Zappos. And it, you know, by all accounts was really detrimental to the company. Great experiment Mm -hmm. for the overall ecosystem to see. I love it. Like, much like, I think as big of an experiment as as what GitLab is doing with the all remote thing. Mm Kind of beautiful from a macro perspective. Kind of scary if you're in the middle of that company and somebody is institutionalizing something this rebellious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the core of Bridgewater's experiment is scaling via culture, right? Versus scaling via, you know, budgets or processes or tools or whatever. I mean, like Bridgewater has all that, but like they were really trying to scale via convincing everyone in the company to like 
follow a certain set of shared cultural norms as a way of operating successfully at scale. I personally don't, I mean, like, you know, Bridgewater is a hugely successful company, like at some degree, like I, I don't have the perspective to judge the whole system. I kind of don't feel like that part of it is a success. Like I think the culture, like a lot of their culture is like good. It's like healthy. It's like a good thing. But if you use it as a management tool and you create a situation where people are expected to conform to it as a way of being graded on their jobs, it kind of creates these like perverse incentive structures where people are trying to, to look like they're following the culture rather than you know, trying to follow the spirit of the, of the law. So my takeaway is like, I certainly do not plan to like try and do the same thing at bubble. Like I want to take some of the good feel of it, of having like a really transparent and genuine and honest, like way of interacting, but I don't see institutionalizing culture as the primary management tool. I see it as like one tool in a portfolio of other things, like putting great processes in place and, you know, putting the right like organizational safeguards and checks and balances in place and designing an organization. All right. Last question. What would each of you be working on if you were not working on Bubble? I mean, it's been seven years now, so it's hard to imagine my life different, to be honest. I'm not sure I would be in tech, first of all. I'm very French in some ways, and I still believe in government doing good things, if well-managed. So I might be trying to do some public work type of thing in France. I guess that's what I would be doing. That's a less ambitious answer than I think if you had asked him a couple of years ago. I, I've heard like president of France, like that was like it's the same answer. It's just a time frame issue uh, <laughs> that, that would come after. But but yeah, I, I believe in the public space actually. From an American perspective, it's less the case because government in America has much less power than it has in Europe and in particular in France. But in France, it does have a lot of power. So yeah, I would start with public work first before probably being in, trying to be in office at some point. I can't wait until our governments get more tech enabled. It's going to be so awesome. Like the next generation of politicians is going to be so much more tech savvy and intelligent with how they deploy stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Although it'll be interesting to see like... It might, it might turn wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, the Chinese I, government is very tech savvy and they do some scary stuff. I don't know if it's the government themselves that are tech savvy. It's more like they're like, we want to see everything and you must implement it. And they point to the tech yeah, savvy Yeah, but, but they have the knowledge that it's even possible. I'm not sure people would know that in Western governments. At the end of the day, what's happening is that they're leveraging technology to serve the government interest in a way that I think no other country does. And it leads to some interesting ethical questions. I think that Generation Minecraft, whether you're talking about whatever the Minecraft equivalent in China is, or the American Minecraft users, I don't think you're going to get any authoritarians out of that generation. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I I think generations change a lot, right? Like, I think, like, if you look what happened to the baby boomers, right? Like the the hippies to like, you know, what what they became after that wore down. So I, I'm very interested to see what happens. I, I am excited. Like, I think you're absolutely right that like people who grow up tinkering 
and having a sense of like agency and creating the environment around them, whether that environment is made of blocks with weird like troll creatures trying to kill you. Like, I, I think it only leads to good stuff. But, you know, I think we live in interesting times and it's kind of like a privilege to see how it's going to play out. All right. So now your answer. Right, right. I would probably end up being a political philosophy blogger is probably what I'd end up doing. Like, I'm just like really interested in the questions of like, like, how do societies work? Like I, I mentioned agency a second ago, like agency, like how do individuals have power? How does that flow into collections of people? What does like progress look like, right? Like, what does it mean for society to go in a good direction? Like, how do you reconcile some of the big, like, challenges of, um, A, want to preserve, like, individual liberty and freedom on the one hand, but B, dealing with, like, a world where we're all interconnected and, like, if I, like, you know, pollute, it gets in someone else's face and, like, takes the whole earth down with me. Like, how do you reconcile that kind of stuff? So I could see myself, like, just, like, deep diving on that and, like, trying to come up with some kind of answer. I, I have no idea what it would be, though. And I, I guess uh, you can see that we both have interest in like the social matter, like public, like social issues. Uh, and I think that's actually what got us together and what got us through all these years, in particular the hard years, because I really think what we train, the problem we're trying to solve with Bubble is very important and not just, you know, empowering people to start startups without engineers. Like that's kind of the tip of the iceberg. But fundamentally what we're trying to work on is, you know, access to technology, computer literacy, ability to being independent and not depend on big tech companies. And I think that has, what I'd say that if we don't solve that, I hope someone else, is, uh, someone else does, because this is a very important problem that is much bigger than, you know, uh, creating a new piece of software. I agree with you. It's very profound. And I was thinking about the can of worms of um, the interactions with people I've had in New York recently, politically wise. New York is kind of a hotbed of some uh, interesting political beliefs these days, but we can we can save that for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> guys, thanks for coming on. It's been real fun talking to you. And I'm I'm with you on Bubble. I think it's a I think it's an inspiring platform. I'm glad you guys are doing it. Cool. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks so much for having us on. This is a lot of fun. 